morning, everyone. I'm Father Sean McCain-Tiras. I'm the rector of Res. If you uh, don't know who I am, we've just returned from a sabbatical. I know it takes a few weeks sometimes for like people to sort of get to church and like see what's going on. So uh, if, if you are new, I just want to say hello um, and welcome, and I'm, I'm looking forward to meeting with you. Well, this morning, um, the, uh, the word of the Lord, thanks be to God, might have been a little tricky for some of you on that epistle. Did anyone hear this? We said thanks be to God about this. Um, if you've um, heard any of the readings this morning, you might be thinking, well, what is going to go down today? As, <laughs> right? <laughs> Especially as it pertains to women in the church, um, this is a particularly important topic for us to address. It's important that we not dodge passages like these that the lectionary serves up to us, but we, we face them, we study them, because we know that all scriptures God breathed and is for our good, right? We know that, we can trust that. Well, but before we jump into this 1 Timothy 2 passage, by the way, if you missed the reading, I don't know, you go read it, it's like, a, it's a good one. First, um, before we jump in, I acknowledge how a plain reading of this passage could trigger women and uh, even want, be tempted to walk out when hearing something just like this. This is understandable, and I just want to acknowledge that, because this passage has been, this passage and passages like this have been used to harm and abuse women in the church for a very long period of time. Second, as a man in authority in church, I want to own that and say, this has been used for evil, for hurt, for the subjugation of women in very, very harmful ways in the church, and not only is that evil um, and reprehensible, but it offends the way God does things. It's not how he does it. And in this church, I just want to make really clear, there is no tolerance for that. For the abuse of anyone. For the subjugation of anyone. So that we're clear here. Women are holy and sacred and beloved by God. And that is not up to anyone but him. And that's how he has created them. Third, while what I'm going to teach today is up for debate, there may be varying views about that, and that's fine. It is widely shared, what I'm going to teach, by some of the leading biblical scholars of our time. And it's also, perhaps even more important for me to state, that what I'm about to teach is not something I teach merely as, my, as the rector or in authority in this church, but under the authority of a bishop who commends this exact teaching as well. So I'm in line with him as well. Wow, this is getting like kind of confrontational. <laughs> I'm just trying to clear it up, y'all. Just trying to clear it up. Lastly, I just want to say this is not a woman's issue. This is also very much and maybe even more a men's issue. It is an issue about humanity as a whole. It is an issue about the church and the vision of God's kingdom of male and female. That's what this is an issue about. So all that said, um, if you want to see uh, sort of the beauty of men and women serving beside one another, mutually submissive to one another. If you want to see women using their gifts and recognized for their leadership and their ministry in the church, look at this parish and the women who already do that. Whether ordained or not, you could see that vision. And I want to celebrate that because I think this isn't sort of theoretical for us about leadership and calling and ministry. This is the reality for this church, and that's a gift. And we should praise God for it and preserve that. So, amen. Way to go, Rez. Um, so let's... Is this framed well enough? Okay, we're going to jump in to this passage, and I want to look really carefully, and I'm already going to apologize up front. Um, this is going to be a little bit of a longer sermon. Can I borrow a little bit more time? 
okay? We don't have any like football games right after the service, right? Or something like that. Push back your brunch plans just a bit. I think that it deserves a little bit more time uh, because it's such an important topic. And I just want to pay very careful attention to what scripture is actually saying. Just so that we can uh, give each other some permission to just think carefully, spend some time on this this morning. Okay, in 1 Timothy 2, it's important to notice first that Paul is writing Timothy with advice about a pastoral situation of disorder in the worshiping church. This is a very particular situation that Paul is writing to. And in verse 8, he refers to anger and quarreling. Did you notice this? Among men. Pray, but not, not with anger and quarreling. And in, verse, in chapter 5, later on in uh, 1 Timothy, verse 13 through 15, he describes women as busybodies busy who have strayed toward Satan. What's going on? In 2 Timothy 3, verses 6 and 7, some are learning from false teachers, and it's causing a mess. So the immediate situation is one of a very chaotic worship setting, Okay? That both women and men are at fault for here. And Paul is offering some pastoral correction. Fighting men. Like picture this. Fighting men and women dressed to impress. Sounds way more like 6th Street than it does a church. Am I right? Anybody know about 6th Street? That was, that's kind of delayed. Everybody knows about 6th Street. In verse 8, he tells men to lift up hands in prayer, perhaps opposed to wagging fingers and maybe shaking fists. In the following verses that Paul writes, not, nothing he argues here, uh, in no place does he argue for the subjugation of women to a male authority. It's very important because this passage has been used to justify that thing. But Paul actually never says that. Instead, in verse 9, Paul urges women to dress modestly so as to not desire unruly attention upon themselves. In verse 11, uh, he tells Timothy to let women learn quietly and with all sub submissiveness. This kind of advice to learn quietly. We might not catch this, sort of just reading it in our English translation with sort of out the context of the ancient world. But this advice to learn quietly, um, biblical scholars find all over the ancient world as very standard advice for students, both male and female. But to learn, submit to your teacher, learn quietly, have the luxury of that space to learn. It's similar to advice that we find given in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 34, by Paul again. There's another helpful parallel in uh, chapter 5, verse 13, of women saying uninformed things during the church's worship. And Paul is making a scandalous proposal here, that time, uh, that women are given that time and encouraged to actually learn without being interrupted by men or really anyone else. But like give me some peace and quiet and let me learn. Especially so as when they do speak. It's not out of turn and it's not uninformed. But this is important. He is not commanding women to submit to a male person. You see how we kind of have to split hairs a little bit to get to the thing. It's actually there. In verse 12, Paul writes a phrase that is widely debated, but is unclear, I think, at best, because we lack, again, the context of the pastoral situation he's dealing with. He says, I do not per permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Yikes. Um, some of our leading New Testament scholars, if we kind of stand on their shoulders, 
uh, like Philip Payne, along with others like that you may have recognized N.T. Wright, uh, Scott McKnight, one of our canon theologians, Joel Green, Beth, Ben Witherington, and others. Um, they deny that those who make this a universal command about women in all situations and at all times in the church, that that interpretation overreaches what is actually in the text, overreaches what is actually written. So let's Greek out for a second and look at this. It's important. When Paul uses a phrase like, I do not permit, present active indicative, or in other words, he's expressing a situation that is currently underway, something that is at hand, presently. He is not issuing a command like, women must not do this or that. There's a big difference in the grammar. One of the most important Anglican theologians, Richard Hooker, warns us of making this very mistake, of making a historical and very situational statement given in Scripture, a universal and sort of timeless command that stands no matter what and in all contexts. Don't make that mistake, he says. Paul is offering a corrective to a very particular crisis in the church, one of chaos. Additionally, Paul's phrase about not permitting women to have authority over, did you hear that phrase as well? This loses a bit in translation, not only in the Greek to the English, but also from the ancient world to our own, that deserves our attention. In that period, this phrase was used almost entirely to mean domineer or usurp. Very different than how we might hear it as to exercise authority over, right? To domineer or to usurp. And this is so true in the translation that even the patriarchalists translating and creating the King James Version use usurp for this word. Instead, the idea here might be better restated like this. I do not permit a woman to teach in order to dominate men. That's good advice. It kind of applies to everybody, doesn't it? Okay, lastly, Paul brings up Adam and Eve. Do you hear the, the reference towards the end here? As an example, he talks about Adam being created first and Eve second. And unfortunately, many have interpreted this to mean that women, for sort of like, I think just, it's a lazy argument, but it's, and it's kind of arbitrary, but women created second are more susceptible to deception, they think Paul is saying, because they're created second. But mostly, again, I think it's, it's just, I mean, do some work with the text. It's there. This is an intentional, and sometimes, I mean, I don't know if it's intentional. I can't read people's intentions. But it seems, it appears to be sort of a convenient and very selective reading of Paul. Who is actually writing typologically, which is all over the New Testament. Which is sort of arguing or, or making a point by connecting themes and pictures by similitude. So... And what happens when women are not directly informed by God, but by Adam? He's sort of trying to give a typological example of. So remember, God gave the command not to eat the fruit. When he did, Eve was not yet created. She got this secondhand from Adam. Again, illuminating Paul's point by drawing out this topology, the similitude. Paul's point is that women, just like men, must be given the un uninterrupted, quiet space to hear and learn from God. And not to get everything sort of secondhand from everyone else. This looks like for us, giving women the space to hear the scriptures, to study the scriptures, to hear and study preaching, to listen to the church around them before they stand and speak as an authority. That seems pretty straightforward. So that, and this is critical, once they have learned, 
they might teach. We'll get to that in a second. And I, I know, again, I, I know this feels like we're like really in the text here. We're really nitpicky. Sean's just sort of like firing off all these examples. But it's critical that we take the complexity of Scripture that is actually there. We take that very, very seriously. Especially when what is at stake is the treatment of fellow sacred image bearers of God. Amen? And as we zoom out from this sort of very situational pastoral moment, we zoom out in the text. We find that this interpretation of Paul resonates with everything else that he's written. Everything else in the New Testament. The whole picture of Scripture. Timothy himself, in the Acts, sorry, in the Acts of the Apostles, in the New Testament, the whole picture of Scripture, we see even Timothy himself learning the faith from his mother and grandmother. Priscilla teaching Apollos in Ephesus and those described by Paul as apostles, Priscilla and Aquila, Adronicus and Junia in 1 Corinthians 9.1. They would have not only witnessed the resurrection, but they would have been authorized to preach the gospel. Their early church father, John Chrysostom, even honored Junia, who's mentioned here in 1 Corinthians 9, as great among the apostles, as a great apostle of the church. 1 Corinthians 11 Paul references women praying and prophesying in the church. In Acts, women are teaching. In Romans 16, uh, women are leading in the church. And in Philippians 4, Paul talks about women who have contended by his side in ministry. You can see how when you zoom out and you see the rest of the picture of Scripture, this isn't just some sort of weird, isolated gymnastics that we're having to do with the text so as to not offend women. No, you've got to zoom out and see the whole picture of what is going on in the canon. What God is creating in his kingdom is not the subjugation of women. We shouldn't have to say that, but I have to say it. He's not creating the subjugation of women in his kingdom, nor the subjugation of the Gentiles, which we've also seen before come up in scripture, or the subjugation of slaves, or the subjugation of anyone. That is not what God is doing in his kingdom. Beginning in Genesis and running through the entire witness of scripture to Revelation, we see the creative genius and the saving love of God who has made every single person, including women, in his image. Amen? And he's at work restoring all of broken humanity in Christ. That is what God is up to. Paul writes in Galatians 3, 28. This should already come to mind for us. What this looks like. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female for all, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. So this kingdom vision of men and women serving alongside one another, recognizing each other's God-given gifts and calling and abilities is not only good news to women, but is good news to men, is good news to the whole of the church because of how misshapen, even presently, the church and society have become without women freely exercising their gifts and their call and their leadership in our, in our lives. We have become distorted because half of humanity has been subjugated in so many ways. That is a scar, that is a wound, that's not something to celebrate. What God is bringing about is the healing of this. So women, can I say something to you very plainly? This has never been up for debate by God. This has never been up for debate according to God, your heavenly father. This is never up for grabs. Because he has created you as an essential and significant person with a role in this world. 
in his church, in his kingdom. You're critical. Men, don't get in the way of this. I'm just warning you. People who stand in the way of God, they end up getting leveled. No one stands in the way of the Lord. Take care. This isn't just a sort of threat. That's all I love you, but recognize this. Take care not to obstruct what God is doing through your sisters in Christ. And remember, you are here because of one to begin with. Just recognize this. My mom always remember, helps me remember that. Good. Instead, y'all, instead of getting each other's way or obstructing one another, instead of subjugating others, whoever the other might be, we are called to joyfully submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, as Paul writes in five, uh, Ephesians 5.21. This is really good news. This is what is also underway at this table this morning that we come to. The leveling of all of those others. The dividing walls. All of the ways that we have arranged society in our minds and in our hearts. The way we've arranged our lives, even. To hurt or keep away. To do violence to others. To dominate, to usurp, to exploit and diminish the bodies of others. At this table, all of that is being put away. It's being put aside and it's being leveled. In Christ. Did Christ give himself to empower one over the other? Or to subjugate some that he thought were less? No. Not at all. He gave himself as a ransom for all. As Paul says in 1 Timothy 2. To rescue all. To redeem all. To liberate every human being in Christ Jesus. And welcome each and every one of us into his life renewed forgiven, set free, and empowered. This is key. And not just that, but empowered by his Holy Spirit to take their place in Christ's church that God welcomes you into. So as we sit with this text and we're sort of taking all this in, I want to ask, where in your life do you stand over another? Maybe not in reality, but in your mind or in your heart. In your intentions. Where in your life do you stand over and subjugate another? Maybe with intimidation. Maybe even by introducing chaos. Distraction. Where in your life do you willfully domineer over another? Where in your life might you need to recognize the gifts and value of someone else? Maybe you don't like them. Maybe you don't get along. Maybe you don't agree. Maybe they're nothing like you. Maybe they threaten something about you. But where in your life do you need to recognize that they have intrinsic value and that they have gifts and God has called them? And like Jesus' own example, welcome a mutual submission to them. You can do it first. You can do it first. Be converted, church. Be converted from the myths and the lies of this world that try to arrange us by different sorts of ways and classifications and types. Be converted this morning by the only example that we need, which is the self-giving love of Jesus Christ, who humbled himself for your sake, for my sake. That is our example. That's our reference point. Nothing else. Be converted. Come quickly to his table. Feed on his humbled body this morning. And receive the gift of the forgiveness of sins. The making right, not only in our lives, but in this world, of all things. 
that you might be saved. It's that big of a deal. And that you might learn again to dignify, dignify the bodies that God has lovingly and creatively made. And not only that, but in Christ, those bodies have been glorified. Who are those bodies that might be in your life that this morning you can come and be converted to the way of Christ? I'm going to leave us for just a moment to invite the Spirit to show us who that might be. And then as an act of repentance, as an act of realigning with the way God does things in his kingdom, we're going to step into this aisle and come feed at his table this morning. Amen? Amen. Mm-hmm.